Okay, thank you so much. Um, such a sort of a shame to be indoors when it's so nice out outside, but you know, what, what, what would we, we hope for? Then we just hope for bad weather, right? If we wanted to be writers, so it's a, hmm. I guess we'll have bad weather all week, so then we can get lots of writing done. Um, it's so nice to be here. This is my first time here. I've gone to many writers' residencies, but I've never been to Vermont Studio Center, so it's so nice to come in this kind of interesting capacity. I didn't even know I was funded by the Rona Jaffe Foundation, which is amazing, um, and I've been on their jury many times, so I love them so much, so that's an extra special honor. Um, this is so beautiful where you are. Um, I, I teach also at VCFA, so I come to Vermont for that, and this past year I was at the Brattleboro Book Festival too, and I'm just really amazed by Vermont and I just keep thinking like you know we hole up and we read and write and or other arts right we do all sorts of things but uh, I kept thinking today when I was walking around to walk more slowly to take it all in uh, I think right now being slow is very important it in fact feels a little radical um, and I think it's important in the sort of culture we're in and the speed of things to hear each other and to work mindfully and to take in the beauty around us um, because I think well, there's many reasons why I'm saying that I'm sure you can imagine it's a, it's a pretty difficult time I think for many people at least me um, but I suspect some others so I'm going to read uh, two I, I'm going to end with some you know I'm reading some things that are intense but not all so um, my first novel was 2007 Sons and Other Flammable Objects um, as Jody mentioned, and it had sort of its own big debut. I'm kind of amazed it's 10 years old now, and it's going to have its 10-year anniversary. We're doing a little bit of celebrating for it, because it's also still in print, which is exciting, and it was one of those books that I started writing. I'm about to turn 40 now, and I started writing this when I was uh, 25, and then it came out when I was 29, and in my diary in second grade... I just found this old diary, and I wrote in very broken English that I wanted to. I had I had all these goals. I was going to move to New York City one day. I was going to be a girl author one day, because yeah, I didn't know girls could be authors. Both my cultures, Iranian and American, sort of told me that in certain ways, and so I. Uh, I was excited to do that. And I said, before I turned 30, my first novel had to come out. And then it did, interestingly, at the three months before I turned 30. Um, so I don't read it with, from this that much anymore. But I've come to, as it's become rediscovered um, in recent years, I have come to have a lot of affection for it. One thing that's interesting is I don't think I can write the sentences I wrote in this book anymore. And it's sort of had a maximalist, slightly experimental feel at points in this novel. And so... The 20-something in me was able to do certain things the now nearly 40-something in me can't do. So I have a newfound dis like, respect for it. I'm going to read a part that's actually like very short from the middle, which I know is kind of the kiss of death for novelists like when you try to read from the middle. But uh, this is a self-contained section, and all you really need to know... All you really need to know about this novel in general is it's a, it's a father-son novel, and it's about an Iranian father and an Iranian-American son who end up having a lot of problems in their relationship. And then world events heightens that. And in this case, it's 
and uh, you, you then have a whole investigation to what the difficulties in the relationship were about and the book kind of takes you through all sorts of things from Persian history to pop culture there's a lot of I Dream of Jeannie in here um, lots of different types of 80s American pop culture all the way through 90s and but the heart of it, it's a very simple book, and it's really just about a father-son split. And so there's also a mother who, in some ways, and a, and a girlfriend, and there's, in my head, the sort of heroes of this book. Um, so this book, I have not hesitated to say this is a very autobiographical first novel. I know some writers don't like to say that, but I, it was so incredibly autobiographical that my parents' real address was in it, and their real phone number when it was in Galley's, and my editor was like, uh, we just sent you Galley's at the same address in your book. What are you doing? And I was like, oh, oops, sorry, must change that. Um, it was that real to me, and, and so people often are like, how could it have been you? It's a father-son novel. But I had a very father-son relationship with my father. And uh, I was very close to my mother. Um, but I was fairly competitive with my father. And it was, we had a lot of distance. But there's a lot of that here. This is a little scene, this, this little tidbit. It's, it's, it's very much real. Um, you have the son, Xerxes, going to with his mother, Lala, which is an Americanized version of a Farsi named Lala. Um, they're taking a little, little day trip to Rodeo Drive in LA, which was about 40 minutes from where I grew up. And for my family, when we first came to America, that was an obsession of theirs, to go into sort of the affluent parts of LA so we could see how rich Americans lived and also how rich Iranians lived, because there's a whole Tarangelis phenomenon there too. Um, we didn't have any money, but we were, you know, that was what we did on the weekends. So this is, do all of you know who Ed McMahon is? I feel like it's lost on some younger people, but if not, go Google, like go to YouTube. <laughs> it kind of explains who he is in this, but this happened to, this actually happened and it was a whole weird thing. So, it's a very short section. Once when he was young, late single digits, he'd guess, on one of those weekends when Darius chose not to participate, his out for the day meaning an exhaustion, an antisocial feeling that demanded he lie helpless under the covers with curtains drawn until the day was over, or rather meaning he was feeling restless and therefore all the more antisocial, so he'd silently slip away and seek refuge in the bookstores and research libraries of the local college. On such a mother and son day, Lala took him on a drive through the nice parts of Los Angeles. That was how she phrased it, nice parts, which ended up being a tour of wealthy Beverly Hills and eventually just Rodeo Drive, just a long afternoon drive back and forth, up and down its pathetic, glittering length. Thirty miles or so, but worlds away from their hometown, this Rodeo Drive was supposed to embody what his mother thought of as, quote, niceness. She told him of street for, quote, the best people, which he had translated to rich and famous. And so like a dream come true, after she finally parked, deciding that they too deserved to walk down this strip of gilded, if not golden, Los Angeles perfection, they encountered their first celebrity. Out of a slick black limousine stepped out a black-suited, burly, silver bear of a gentleman, Ed McMahon. Since this television personality was one of few celebrities Lala Adam would ever recognize, after years of savoring McMahon's Here's Johnny roar as the Tonight Show announcer in the 60s and 70s, not to mention her deep admiration for a stint in the 80s as the presenter of American Family Publishing Sweepstakes, who would arrive unannounced at the homes of winners, 
Lala began waving and panting like the teenagers in old concert clips. She urged, she urged Xerxes to go ask for his autograph, and when her son refused, she realized she had to do something, so she loudly uttered a joke about whether or not she had won a million dollars that he either didn't hear or ignored, and before they knew it, he had just disappeared through a dark door on the strip. They just stood there, meditating on his appearance. It was anything but nice for Xerxes, Ed McMahon for some strange reason giving him chills, horrible, very real shudders creeping up and down his spine, Ed McMahon making him tense and afraid, downright sick. He didn't figure it out until many years later when reruns of the 1980s talent competition he hosted, Star Search, did the same thing, making him aggressively thumb the remote. At some point, he realized that it was just Ed McMahon for him, for whom uh, he reeked of apocalypses. It had to be because the first time he ever saw Ed McMahon in his dark suit and heard his booming tenor was on a night when he was very young, when he used the vision of the man on screen to block out the sounds of his parents behind their shut door, arguing more loudly than they could imagine about unsolvable big things like wars and dictators and regimes and military and mass deaths, one of their many but first witnessed horrible homeland fights. Ed McMahon had clapped and chuckled and introduced over and onward over their cries and snaps and screams and bangs, but he could not outdo them. Not only was the man useless, trapped in that blaring box belonging to that applause and confetti realm, his world existing just side by side next to theirs, somehow it all had the effect of making Xerxes feel less safe than ever. He was alone. The voices behind the bedroom door, the voices behind the tube, they were all voices far removed from his own small, high, cracked one. How would he ever explain a phobia of a man, a thing, an institution like Ed McManness? The older Xerxes adopt their logic without a fight. Window equated with cotton candy, Ed McMahon equated with the stench of a simultaneously foreign and native burning his parents and, and burning, taking his parents and threatening himself. He imagined drilling a hole under the glossy platform of Star Search where Ed McMahon, for thousands of hours of his life, judged, painted, baby, neon entertainers, drilling a hole so deep it would go through the smoldering center of the earth and come out the other end. On the opposite end of McMahon's shiny designer shoes through the wailing volcanic fodder of the planet's core would certainly be other feet and maybe knees and maybe hands and held torsos of the perpetually aching, ailing, hurting people of the other world, most of the world, that looked somewhat more like Xerxes Adam, looked at least more as he was supposed to look, that shared with him something he could never quite get in touch with but clearly had to have. And that's a little section from Sons, a little bit of an intense section and an intense book. But there's, you know, I think both my books kind of get, the novels get classified as sort of dark humor in a sense, but, you know, they're, they're a, a certain sort of uncomfortable dark humor, I think. Uh, but at a time where I think we need discomfort, I think discomfort is good. We have to face a lot of things right now, and we can't not be uncomfortable. And I think that's a productive emotion. So let me continue to make you feel uncomfortable a little longer. Um, <laughs> uh, America is making me very uncomfortable. Iran is making me, everything is making me uncomfortable these days. Um, tiny section now from The Last Illusion, and then I'll read an essay that will make more sense sort of with these two things in mind. So The Last Illusion came out in 2014, and this book is in many ways um, shaped to mirror suns and other flammable objects, but it's very much a fabulous take on a father-son story. Um, here I have a 
feral child, basically, who comes of age in Y2K to 9-11 era New York. He becomes friends with a magician who's based on David Copperfield. Um, based specific, I picked that because when we first came to America, I don't know if some of you might remember, David Copperfield had a Statue of Liberty Disappearing Act. Yeah, that was my first live telecast that I watched, and I was so confused by Americans being obsessed with it because he was making the Statue of Liberty disappear, which I thought is a bad thing, right? Like, if you're in America, you should be like, oh, no, I'm scared. Like, that's bad. We like the Statue of Liberty, right? But everybody's like, yay, it's gone. I was like... What's the symbolism there? I was so confused. I was like, first time that I wanted to understand theme. I was asking my parents, like, what am I supposed to make of that? And they were like, no, it's just fine. It's just a magician, you know? And I was like, no. I couldn't, I couldn't let go of it. I knew I would write about that one day. Um, of course, in my book, and this is not a spoiler, you know that it's going to be the World Trade Center that's going to... Uh, be the the um, disappearing act, um, and then in my book, the other thing I always wanted to write about was a story about um, this particular bird boy because it's based on a Persian myth from the Shahnameh or the Book of Kings, which for Iranians this text is like a cross between the Old Testament meets Chaucer meets um, you know the Odyssey. It's our big book, and there's little stories all throughout it. And if you're interested in the Shahnameh or the Book of Kings. Dick Davis does an incredible translation of it, um, and there's a great forward by Azar Nafisi of Reading Lolita in Tehran. Um, it's a really wonderful book if you just want lots of weird uh, medieval Iranian adventure stories. It's pretty great. Um, it's all in couplets. It's a 50,000 uh, couplet epic. And so the story of Zal in there really, really interested me. And that was a story of basically a boy that was born to this great kingdom, and he was essentially, or so we can get from the text, he was, he was an albino. And one of the things that's interesting to Sean Amit is there's a, uh, you know, every, everybody's dark-haired and brown-skinned, and that's beauty. This boy is white-skinned and blonde-haired, and it's horrifying. So the parents basically abandon this child and are just like, want nothing to do with it. And so he ends up being raised by a giant bird, uh, the Seymour, who's a huge figure in, in Persian literature. Um, and he ends up becoming a great warrior. And this story really moved me in so many ways. It also confused me in so many ways because we were in America where I felt, at least LA in the 80s, the standard was very much like, blonde hair and white, you know, everybody was kind of blonde and popular in my schools and like everything was that and I didn't understand. I was fascinated by my own culture's sense of beauty and then of course I was fascinated by this idea of this great outsider story that actually turns out well and this boy that's essentially abandoned becomes this hero. Now, there's a little bit of Iran in here at the very beginning of it. I'm not going to read that part. There's a lot of me reading it online. But there's a, most of this book actually takes place in this reinvented New York before 9-11. And so this is um, as we're getting closer. And Zal, named after the original Zal, is, um, he's basically coming of age and trying to come to grips with the fact that he believes he's still a bird, but he's also trying to be a man and a human. So this feral child story also, by the way, is based in part on a uh, Russian bird boy story that I saw in the Daily Mail in 2008 where they feral children's stories can all be hoaxes, obviously, but there was a weird story that popped up um, where they had found a boy that was chirping in the woods in Russia outside a bird cage, and there had been some 
possibility that he was raised as a bird. And I was like, that's the Zal of Persian myth. So I have to write about that. So I really took this far. I like really went with this premise and imagined a boy in like our world trying to cope with the fact that he kind of identifies as a bird. And, uh, you know, I have him like eating insect candies on the sly and like trying to like understand how you could be a man and a human at the same time. Uh, it was a fun, weird experiment for a writer. Um, but so I'll just read a little section that has to do with him trying to get his first job. Um, and so he's, he thinks that a great idea, he's in his early 20s now, and he thinks a great idea would be to work at a pet store. So that, you know, he could still be kind of around birds, but a legitimate human. Does this make any sense? I feel like every time I explain this, people are just like, oh, <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> I'm sorry. It's like I, this book came out three years ago, and I'm still like not used to setting it up because I'm like, it's a crazy book. But what's funny is sci-fi and fantasy audiences are like, love it, totally understand it, no problem. And the literary world has been great too, but like, it's incredible how it's like those readers are like, we don't care. We totally accept aliens coming out of people's noses. And, you know, <laughs> it's like, okay. Okay. So he decided, oh, his name is Zal, and that's all you really need to know for this section. His girl, he has had a girlfriend at this point, Ossia, but she's not in this section, but it's just really just him and this pet store called Pets Delight in the Upper West Side. So he decided to immerse himself more fully in that soothing, dumbing thing work. He paid attention to the store more than ever, compulsively asking patrons if they needed help until one lady complained, swearing she'd been asked at least a half dozen times in the half hour she was there. He swept, cleaned, folded, washed, and tended to every animal or human that he was supposed to tend to. He became a super worker of sorts and found a surprising amount of pleasure in that. It was simple. He was good. The contract was clear. The end. There was one creature he took a special interest in. She was a tiny blonde, tiny but still voluptuous, round in all the right ways. She was particularly feisty, quick, hot-tempered, sassy. He was around her all day. She never left his sight. She'd sing once in a while and was the sweetest singing he thought he'd ever heard. She was, he hated, downright detested, resented, abhorred to admit, a bird. A canary, to be exact. He could not help himself. Zal saw those words on his tombstone. And he knew it was certainly time to quit his job when he started to develop feelings for, of all things, a canary. Luckily, he didn't have to quit. He was fired just 10 days after he confronted his infatuation. He was given a warning for taking the bird out of the cage for no one but himself, then for unsuccessfully sneaking her in his pocket during his lunch break, then for attempting to take her with him to the bathroom. Saul, I don't know what's going on here, the manager had said, but I need your hands off the goddamn bird. If you want to buy it, it's one thing. He'd considered it, of course, but he knew, like a former junkie before a free bag of heroin, that if he went there, it really would be the beginning of the end. Goodbye, normalcy. Goodbye, new life. Hello, yesterday and all its infinite sicknesses. He said it would never happen again. Until one evening, during closing, whether he meant to do it or not, he took her out and let her go into the night sky. He claimed it was an accident, that he would pay for it, that they could take it out of his paycheck. Sorry, Zal, the manager said. I'm probably crazy for thinking you got obsessed with a bird, but you freed the same one you kept playing with. I'm in this business because it's just a bunch of animals, no drama. The thing with you and that bird was weird. What's it going to be next, the iguana or the rat terrier? I can't have employees getting all attached. I love animals too, and I'd love it if they were free to rule the world, but I've got to run a business. 
Zal nodded and nodded and nodded. He was grateful for the interpretation. And in many ways, he was grateful to go through it, another human step, being fired from a job. It was fine. He could get another one. That night, he went home happier than usual. He gazed at the skies. He took those automatic steps and thought to himself, somewhere a beautiful creature is free. He missed her a bit, but he reminded himself that he didn't even know her, couldn't know her. He reminded himself that she had entered his life, like the skydiving, like the job in the first place, to test him. And he had failed, but the beautiful thing about failure in humans, as he was realizing over and over, was that it was not just permitted, but in many ways supported. Failure was part of the condition of life. Many years later, Pet's Delight on the Upper West Side was shut down because the owner was caught selling dozens and dozens, perhaps more than a hundred, canaries to a ringleader of a canary fighting ring upstate. <laughs> canary fighting was a shock to most people, but not to Zal, who had grown up around them. They could fight, indeed. But it reminded Zal of his canary and her rescue on the last day of his work. Sometimes, as they said, things really did happen for a reason. He felt that mixture of heartbreak and relief that had defined all of his life's many near misses. So I'll stop there with that. It's my bird boy. Oh, I love. That's my real memoir, actually. I said that to an interviewer recently, and they were so disturbed. They were like, what? Because her whole thing was like, why do you write about men? And I was like, why, why, what? I write fiction, you know. It was like a weird question, like, wow, you know. And then she said, but, and then she said, your memoir is coming out. It'll be so good to have a memoir from you. I said, my second novel is my memoir. And she said, what? I said, my bird boy. That's who I really relate to. And she was very, very, very upset by that and didn't want much to do with me. <laughs> sort of the joy of being a writer. It's so freaking people out. Um, okay, so this is actually a very, very much a memoir, very much a personal essay, real deal. This is called Camel Ride, Los Angeles, 1986. It'll be the last thing I read. Um, it is an uh, essay in 11 parts. And it was... Uh, selected by my good friend Debel and Unferth for Gornica's Innovative Memoir Issue in 2011. So it's like an old essay of mine. I constantly write essays. I think some of you guys saw an essay of mine that uh, came out this week that's on Catapult about writing, how to write Iranian America or the last essay, as, I, as I've been calling it. And um, I'm not really, that's not the, really the real last essay, but it talks about the burdens of writing being like the Iranian-American ambassador, in a sense, in, in, my wor in the literary world. There's a lot of Iranian writers who write about Iran, but I've been really writing mainly just about the diaspora and issues of the U.S. And so there was, at many points in my life, the literary and media worlds tried to make it out that I was, like, the first, you know? And I felt very uncomfortable with that for many reasons. One of the many reasons was that I'm, there, I'm sure there were ones before me who didn't count to them. And, uh, and then it made me think, why did I count and all those issues? So there's a long essay I have. In that essay, I talk about the making of a lot of these essays. Uh, mostly, most of my essay work has been in the New York Times for the past decade. And I continue to work for, you know, write for different sections of the New York Times. But there were a lot of weird pressures behind the scenes there. And I addressed them at that in, that, in that essay. This essay, there was not a lot of pressures behind. It was a sort of fun essay for me to write. But it was also an essay that was... Um, it was, a, it, was a, it was a very intense story that I didn't know if anyone would really relate to or understand. I've been sort of heartened. I've been rereading from it a little bit. And I've, uh, you know, 
Oh, I do so many setups. I should be a poet, I think. <laughs> the poets are the masters of the setups. Okay, I'm just going to read this. This, this is where we're novelists. We're long-winded. Um, the, all you have to know here is just this is a story of my father uh, taking my family and I to the zoo in 1986, just a few years after we'd come to the U.S. And he thinks it's going to be a great idea for us to take a camel ride. I see in your expressions that you already understand why that would not be a good idea, right? So, yeah, it got really out of hand. So this was my worst nightmare at that time. And so this is very much from a child's perspective. This is the point of this essay. So you can see. One, it had come down to this, a camel ride. Mid-80s Los Angeles Zoo, a place I had never been before. The air was dusty and soft-celled. The sky was orange and cloudless. Our faces a light lavender. This is what the matte photos tell us today. And my hair a glossy black bowl, my body too thin and sloppily tucked into overalls. There is a picture of me attempting to embrace an all-white goat in the petting zoo, another of me in front of an indifferent bored giraffe, and one where I'm trying to force a straw from a supersized cup into my little brother's nose, and the blurry hand on the edge of it trying to stop me. It's the hand of my father. There's no picture of us with the camels. That is only in my head. It was a lucky day, the middle of the week, a school day he let us get off because he was working this weekend. A fact we did not know, again and again, he said it was because he loved us so much. A fact he reminded us of on the way there, on the way everywhere. And we saw the lions, which he reminded us, appeared on our flag, which is still our flag, he'd say. And the polar bears, which looked out of place in the sunshine, but he assured us were fine. That they love this climate that LA and Tehran share, don't forget that. And the gorilla who entertained the laughing masses by regurgitating whatever food he kept trying to eat over and over, which my father did not like. What is the meaning of this, of him, he said, but he tolerated for our sake. There were animals we wanted to leave and animals we did not want to leave. And there it was. Who doesn't want to ride a camel, the sign yellow and maroon dared. We didn't. My father pointed out that it looked like they could take all three of us on one camel. How fortunate. He told us we don't have to be scared. All the other kids are loving it. We weren't scared. I wasn't scared, rather. I was thinking about my little brother. Suddenly time moved slowly, more slowly than it had all day. It was suddenly just me, my father, and the camel. Something, it seemed, had to be done. In my head, I thought, I don't want to. You can't make me. Out loud, he said, are you ready? Come on, everyone. This is what you've been waiting for. What we've been waiting for was more likely a place where we could be just like everyone else, rid of a certain yellow and maroon script, rid of rides on the backs of things, or just the idea of us riding on the backs of things, especially that thing. We were somewhere else altogether. We two children stood there, frozen, shamed, butts of a cruel joke. Only I looked at him straight in the eye, though he was already counting dollar bills, asking my mother to get in line for us. It had come down to this, apparently. Two. We were only a few years into this, our arrival into America, a place I attempted to call home, even though I was warned it was all temporary. My first memories were my last memories of Iran. First, an old man sitting with me at a party, talking and talking and suddenly stirring his tea with a finger. The next, false air raids in the night sky of Iran, empty threats from Iraq's side, a circle of beautiful pink lights in the black night sky, a thing of beauty to me even in my mother's shaking arms. I learned English through watching The Twilight Zone. Over and over, I filled our quiet home with the magical incantation, you're traveling through another dimension, a dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind, a journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. A signpost up ahead, your next stop, The Twilight Zone. 
I also learned English through imitating kids on the playground of preschool, a twilight zone I'd suddenly been thrown into. They said bad words, I said bad words, and I went home and said the bad words to my parents. Usually it was okay because they didn't know what the words meant either, but sometimes they did. And then a huge sadness would fill the room and not leave until the blabber of the TV finally would interrupt and shake off its weight. I love this country with the lukewarm, watery, neither here nor there love that you bestow upon any country when it's the only country you know. I accepted it and never until much later considered that it might not accept me. Three. The camel that is looking right at us has a nameplate on its blanket. It says its name is Scheherazade. The name of a relative of mine is Scheherazade, but I think no relation. My father, however, points it out and laughs loudly about it. My mother, whose relative it is, smiles weakly, more bored than anything. Where is my mother, I wonder, a question I often have. She's off in the Sears catalog, in One Life to Live, an herb and kidney bean and lamb stew for dinner tonight, and laundry and dishes. I am alone with my concern for the situation. There is another camel named Latte and another camel named Coco, but I see Scheherazade alone. Scheherazade alone sees us. Four. I become good at becoming one of them, for the most part. One thing I realized was that to become one of them, you don't just think you, of becoming one of them. You think of them as people, which is weirder and less obvious and more exhausting than it sounds. Which type of them would you like to be? Take a role. There was the teacher's pet, the prettiest girl, the class clown, the fastest runner, the shyest kid, the overweight one, the genius, the most crazy. There, there are two that appeal to me, the weird one and the bad girl. The first one I'm terrifically suited for. My clothing style in the first grade was a compromise of dependence and independence. I wore what, whatever overdressed thing my mother wanted, but added a few items of my own, like a cowboy hat or neon soccer socks or a scarf tied around my head as a bandana. The kids always commented on how weird I looked. I started to say weird things, made jokes that made no sense even to me, made noises that were otherworldly, and took on a faraway look. During recess, I drew instead of played. A weird thing to do. I hung out with teachers more than other students. Weird. Even a teaching assistant called me weirdo for tagging along with her so much. I showed other students the content of my lunch from home, a gray mottled eggplant dip that smelled like carpet, I declared, beating them to it, even though I loved few things more than Kashkabonam John, and a yellow rice pudding with a heart and cinnamon, Chorazard, which I also loved and also pretended was made of plastic for their sake. They wrinkled their noses and some shrieked and even moved away and I smiled. Weird, weird, weird. The bad girl I was less suited for, but I wanted. A way to be different was to simply be weird, but another way, said the movies, was to be a villain. When it came time to try out for the role in the school's production of Dorothy and the Rainbow Connection, a kiddie, low-budget version of The Wizard of Oz, <laughs> uh, it was, it was, have you heard of Dorothy and the Rainbow Connection? It's like some weird kid's version of it. But I thought Wizard of Oz is already a kid's you know what I mean. It doesn't make any sense. Okay. I, uh, I knew exactly what I wanted to be. While all the popular kids aimed for Dorothy or Glenda or even Toto, I wanted to be the Wicked Witch of the East. I told the teacher that and she looked at me amused. She said if I had to be a witch, she could see Glenda only. Sorry to say. I shook my head. She said, surely I knew what a Glenda type was. I shook my head again. It bothered me. She said, you're too good to be a bad witch. At best, you could only be a good witch. And I took this badly, like recent experiences where adults tried to discourage me. Piano lessons, which the teacher, frustrated by my slow learning, said my hands were better suited for pottery. Ice skating lessons, where my teacher complained I dragged my left foot oddly and asked me to withdraw, worried I had some kind of condition. But my only condition 
badness, weirdness. I tried out for the bad witch still, defiantly in front of that teacher who just smiled as if she had forgotten our conversation. I tried out and I failed. I did not get a lead, but I did get a one-liner. I was Dorothy's cousin Lori, a made-up character who in one line was to catalog all the food they had at this particular Kansas reunion. Fried chicken, biscuits, gravy, mashed potatoes, sweet potato pie, etc. Foods I never ate. Five. Shahrazad is being fed a handful of something that looks like grass. It's hard to say if latte and cocoa eat the same stuff, but one has to assume they do. One has to assume. Six. It'll soon be over anyway, my mother's saying with a light hand on my shoulder. Where is my mother? My mother was the one who was always home, but where was she? Why could I never get a solid grasp on her? I knew if I could only remember when she was pregnant with my brother five years ago, then she'd be memorable, big like those balloon mothers with babies inside them on TV. But it's possible even then she'd be the vessel just for my little brother. She was already something of that, when she wasn't my father's wife, that is, or my grandparents' daughter, or Shahrazad or the other's cousin. But when does she get to be my mother, I wondered. I was never enough to make her mad or worry, which my father and brothers seemed to do. But was I good enough either? She tried to make cupcakes once, her first time making that American dessert, and she passed the bowl of batter to me. I looked at it confused. She said, you shouldn't eat too much of this. It can make you fat. You can become like those fat Americans. But I didn't eat any of it. I never became a fat American, not even when I got older. She looked down at the pasty mess and sniffed at it and then put the bowl in the sink. Anyway, Iranians can be fat too, remember, she said. We're no better than anyone else, no matter what your dad says. Seven. Dad is saying, it is time, it is time. Who doesn't want a camel ride? He's saying that in English, unlike everything else, and that's the worst part. Everyone hearing him in his accent, obviously Middle Eastern, getting excited about a camel ride. I am staying put, looking not at him, but my mother, who looks weak and bored. She finally points at me, but it's not quite at me, I realize. It's over me. It is at him, my father. She's telling, to him, to, telling him to, me to go to him. But my father no longer looks like my father. He looks like a Middle Eastern man. I don't know. He looks like a sheikh, a terrorist, a sultan, a mullah, a dervish, a camel jockey. How do I know that term? I don't know how I know that term. Are you coming, he's saying still in English. The camel is waiting. I shake my head. Be a good girl. Come on, he's saying. But I'm a bad girl. I'm the worst girl. I want nothing to do with that thing. But I don't say that, of course. By the time he gets to me, I say what I usually say when I'm in these kinds of predicaments, something that is not altogether untrue. I can't do it, I say. I'm very sick suddenly. Help. Eight. I never needed to ask who my father was. I knew him well. He was the one of us who should have been the most worried. Jet black hair, dark brown skin, eyes all pupil. He looked the way they imagine. My mother had hair. She dyed reddish blonde and light skin to go with it. They said she looked like a non-lead actress from Dynasty, a show I didn't know then, but a name I heard around her cousins a lot, who liked to flatter her over and over, maybe in attempts to make her more present. But she was like those fair women all around us, on TV and supermarkets, outside waiting for their blonde children, like lemon and ice and water and snow and winter. She was barely there. My brother had her light eyes and light curls as if she dyed it so much that the lightness suddenly took permanence in him. This will pass, they say. Young kids always have lighter hair. But when I looked at the old photos of myself, my hair was black, black like his. The sun alone was what made my hair ever play brown. I was a lot like him, they said. This embarrassed me. I wanted no part of it. 
I didn't want to be like her either. I wanted to be unlike them and everyone, really. I wanted to be the girl who had no bubble beside her name, nothing to fill in. I wanted to be something altogether different, but instead I was like him. And he was unmistakable. And just as you'd imagine, he'd had the temper too. Everything was loud, even his laughter. He played the native music too loud. He prayed with all his might. And when he said, my country, it was not this one. He was the one who took us over and over. He was the one who told us over and over that he wouldn't be, be here long. He took me, it took me a long time to realize that he was often wrong about things and to not take him so seriously. But at seven, I still had no idea. When he said camel ride, I didn't know what my outs were. There was no reasoning, I thought. And so I said I was sick, and I thought I was sick, thought myself into it, and I was sick. He had no choice but to accept it and go ahead with it anyway. Bad father of a bad girl that he was. Nine. He has heard this one before, and he knows how to deal with it. He put a hand on my forehead and says, I feel cool. He calls my mother over, and she tries it too. She's okay, she says, staring off somewhere, somewhere far, far away from everything out here. She hands over my brother, who's smiling at the sky. Don't stare into the sun, he always has to remind him. That is in Farsi. In English, he adds, who doesn't want to ride a camel, right? Right? My brother is in. He's fallen. There's nothing I can do. Ten. I never felt any jealousy with my brother. He could have the cute, the adorable, the sweet, the good. He had foreknew how to hug and kiss everyone. I never did that, never do that. He said, I love you, like it was just another nursery rhyme. He had a monopoly over things I didn't want, the good and the normal. Our worlds rarely intersected. I read to him while he played with toy trucks. When he cried for a toy at the drugstore, I pretended he didn't exist. Once or twice, I was asked to watch him when my mother went out while my father was working, and it was nothing. Neither he nor I were in a danger when we were alone. We were sometimes in danger when we were, they were with us. My mother, because she was never there. My father, because of things like this, how things come down to things like this. 11, last section. His hand, big and sweaty, is around my wrist. In his other arm is my brother. My mother is behind us, waiting, waving, even as she looks down at the pavement. I don't know if I'm doing it on purpose, breathing loudly to remind him he's being negligent of his sick daughter, or if I'm actually grasping for air, sick as I really am. But we're second in line, second and last. The line ends with us. It is, as I suspected, not popular for anyone to ride camels. My father finally notices my upset. What's wrong, liver, he says, except liver in Farsi means deer. Why so sad? This is a great opportunity, so much fun. I look down and put my hand over my heart. It is not exaggerated. My heart is actually pounding as if it's knocking against my chest. Let me get out of here, it seems to say, as if it can't last such an ordeal either. I just don't want to ride the camel, I say, and I'm sick. My father laughs too loudly. You're afraid, is that it? There's nothing to be afraid of. I shake my head. Then what is it? You're not sick. Trust me, he said. I think about what to say. What can I say? What can be said of all this? I would say, Father, I don't want to be taken for what I inevitably think they will take this as, a group of Middle Easterners here, Iranians, actually, and just a few years after these guys were selling fuck Iran buttons in supermarkets, something I will learn about much later, Father, but you must have known, or did you not? Did you choose not to know a group of Middle Easterners about to get on the back of, of all animals, a camel, the camel being the thing they associate with us, what they take us as, camel chalkies, haven't you heard? Haven't you heard? And don't ask me how I've heard. Father, why would you put us in the situation? 
humiliation? Isn't there a danger to that? And if not real danger, isn't there a danger in exposing us to too much public humiliation for even if it's not on their lips, it's in their eyes. And at seven, Father, I swear, I can read their eyes. I just hate camels. That's all I tell him in the end. All I can think of saying. And for a second, there's something scary I see in his eyes. There's nothing to hate. It's just an animal. That's all. What's there to hate? I don't say anything, and then it's our turn. We ride the camel. My father behind us clutching both me and my brother, all three of us silent the whole time, as a blonde woman with a big smile, with eyes shielded behind big sunglasses, walks Scheherazade around the riding area. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of the imagination, it is not. I expect the ride to take an eternity, but it takes five or so minutes as they advertise. It feels like it is, five minutes on top of a camel in the sun against your father and your brother, nothing more or less. Then we're down, and my mother and father get into a fight because she forgot to take a picture, and my father wonders how in the world she could when she hasn't been so good about it, when she's been so good about it all day. And then my brother has a fit by the ice cream stand, which is out of a particular type of ice cream he wanted, and I suddenly put my hand over my ears to block him out, and he pushes me harder than I had ever, than I knew he ever had in him, and I lose my balance, and I topple into a vat of cactus. The rest of our time there is spent at the zoo's hospital, where a kind old lady with tweezers plucks out the needles in me one by one. My father keeps asking me if I am in pain over her shoulder in Farsi, and I keep not answering him. My mother is outside entertaining my brother, who is finally eating the ice cream he wanted, bought from another stand, a reward for his wrongdoing. And the old lady is trying to get me to speak too, but keeps asking me if I did anything fun. My father finally interjects, well, we took a camel ride. With all those needles in me, it doesn't even affect me. I let him have it. The old lady chuckles. How brave of you, she says to me and just me. And that snaps me out of it. I look her straight in the eye, questioning. You fucking dune goons, she goes on. Why don't you go back to your country? My heart is pounding. Did she really say that? No, she did not really say that. She said, how brave of you. I would have been nervous up there on a thing like that. I nod. How do I tell her I was? That I was so sick I could die. How do I get into it? I don't. By the time all those needles are out of me, I am a grown woman. Old even. Old as the old lady herself. I have heard, seen it all. Nothing surprises me really except the beautiful things in life of which there are fewer than I thought, than, than I would have thought. Love is hard. Acceptance harder. Belonging still hardest. Home is still nothing. Who is time for home and all the wondering about its wondrous whereabouts? That orange and lavender day spent among animals is nothing. Just a day. What is there, as he would say, to hate? Thank you so much for... Thank you.